How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're ready to study God's Word, ready to focus and concentrate under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He's the one that indwells us, and under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, He teaches us and helps us to understand His Word and then to store it in our souls for future recall and application. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege and freedom this evening to gather together as a body of believers to study your word and to learn everything that you would have us to learn about your plan for human history. Now, Father, as we focus on the future and future events of the tribulation and second coming, we pray that we could uh, uh, assimilate all of this information and begin to understand, appreciate how you are going to bring everything to a final conclusion for the demonstration of your perfect righteousness and justice in human history and to demonstrate your glory in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Freedom in history is rare, a rare commodity and tenuous at best. And throughout history there have been those rare times and rare events where men have secured freedom for a nation. And too often we take our freedoms lightly or we forget why we have those freedoms. And the freedoms that we have were all secured because there were men and women who were willing to sacrifice their lives and to take a stand in the cause of freedom. And yesterday marked the anniversary of one of those great battles in human history that was responsible for securing freedoms in this country. It had its roots in a revolution that started in Mexico in 1810 and finally culminated in their freedom from Spain in 1811 or 1821. But they had a little problem, as most uh, fledgling republics do. There's always a few tyrants who want to seize control and take away freedom from the everyday citizen of the nation. Mexico was no different. They had one of those great tyrants of history, probably the original a Teflon president or a comeback kid, as it were, by the name of uh, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Santa Ana was president of Mexico no less than 11 times. One time in the 1840s, he secured, uh, he was so unpopular and such a tyrant that he uh, resigned from office, placed all the blame on his vice president, led a revolt against his own administration, and put himself back in power. We think recent presidents in our history were slick. But Santa Ana was one of those presidents who wanted to take away the freedoms from the Mexican citizens. Now, in 1824, the Mexican government established a constitution that allowed for freedom to the Anglo colonists in Texas. But at the same time, they merged Texas in with a northern state in Mexico called Coahuila. And as the, that did not uh, make the Texans happy, so in 1835, they uh, sent a petition to the Mexican government, who at this time was controlled by Santa Ana, 
to give them freedom and to establish an independent Mexican state. They weren't initially seeking independence from Mexico. But Santa Ana didn't want anybody to have any level of freedom. So he uh, sent some troops to San Antonio de Bejar in order to uh, execute a little military justice. And the result was what was known as the Texas Revolution. On February 23rd, they set a, uh, Santa Ana had crossed the Rio Grande with about 8,000 troops and came to San Antonio where there was an old mission called the Alamo. The Alamo is Spanish for cottonwood trees, and it was really a large spread. It's not just the mission that chapel that most people think of if they've ever been to the Alamo. It was really a, a, a large mission that could only have been uh, adequately defended by about 1,500 people, but they only had 188. And they stood their ground there for 13 days, called the 13 Days of Glory at the Alamo, and we Texans are mighty proud of what they did because they executed a delaying action against these 8,000 troops of Santa Ana's so that Sam Houston could... Um, pulled together a ragtag army and then began a delaying action to allow Santa Ana to chase him until Houston caught him at a place called uh, San Jacinto or San Jacinto. But it was at the Alamo that they held their ground and um, for 13 days. And on the last day, we are told that at 4 o'clock on the morning of March the 6th, 1836, Santa Ana advanced his men to within 200 yards of the Alamo's walls. And just as dawn was breaking, the Mexican blood-curdling bugle call of the de Guayo echoed the meaning of the scarlet flag above San Fernando. No quarter. It was Captain San uh, Juan Seguin's Tejanos who informed the others who were defending the Alamo of the meaning of the de Guayo, which meant there would be no quarter. Well, Santa Ana's charged three times that day. The first, char- first two charges were turned back. In fact, on the third charge, one battalion, Mexican battalion, called the Toluca Battalion, began to scale the walls in the area of the chapel. And out of 800 men in the Toluca Battalion, only 130 were left alive. Nevertheless, all the Texans died. Santa Ana lost 1,544 men that day, and more than 500 were wounded. And the Texans lost 188. But it was due to their courage and their sacrifice that freedom was eventually secured and the tyranny of Santa Ana was stopped at San Jacinto. So that's just one little glimpse into how our freedom has been earned and preserved in history through the sacrifice of others. And that yesterday was March 6th, the 165th anniversary of the fall of the Alamo. So since you probably don't hear a lot about the Alamo up here, I thought I would uh, give you that glimpse into our history. Well, throughout history, there are always those tyrants who are out to control man, and they are, in a sense, all uh, types of the Antichrist, who is the greatest of all human dictators who will seek to control the world during the time we call the Tribulation. And we began about two weeks ago studying the tribulation. This chart on the, uh, up on the screen gives us the overview of the tribulation period. The church age is the age which we, which we now live. I think we're somewhere near the end of the church age. 
The church age ends with the rapture of the church, as we have studied, and the church goes to meet our Lord in the clouds instantaneously. It will come like a thief in the night. And then in heaven, we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ during this seven-year period known as the tribulation. Now, the tribulation does not begin with, as we have studied, with the rapture. It begins when the Antichrist, who is not known, we may know of the individual, but we will not identify him as the Antichrist during the church age. Probably the first real clue as to who he is is that he will sign a peace treaty with Israel, and that kicks off the period known as the tribulation, the seven-year period. And that ends with the second coming. So we have looked at that, at the overall framework of prophecy in terms of the tribulation. And a couple of weeks ago, we started looking at the terminology for the tribulation. We began with the first term, which is Daniel's 70th week. And we did a study of the unique prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 to 27 last week. And then we began with the second term, which is the day of the Lord. These are important terms, crucial terms to understand if we are going to comprehend the Old Testament prophecies that are related to this uh, last seven-year period in Israel's history. The day of the Lord is one of these important terms because it's even used in passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, which talk about the fact that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And the day of the Lord there, it refers primarily to the uh, tribulation period. The day of the Lord, is, as we'll see, isn't a term that is restricted to the tribulation, but it refers to this entire period of God's intervention in history. So our definition, first of all, of the day of the Lord is that it emphasizes special interventions of God in human history. It is not restricted to a future event, but in its technical sense it is. So generally, though, the term day of the Lord emphasizes the special intervention of God in human history. It emphasizes his victory over his enemies, that is, the nations of mankind who have rebelled against God, the nations who have rejected Christ as Messiah, and the nations who are hostile to Israel. It emphasizes his sovereignty over the universe, that God is the one who is in control of human history, and despite man's failure, despite man's rebellion, despite all of man's uh, uh, uniting of himself together against God, as at the Tower of Babel, the United Nations, and in the end times, despite everything that man does, God still rules human history. So the term refers, we can say, it refers to both a time of judgment and a time of blessing. It is a broad term in that sense. And uh second thing that we saw is that it is used in a non-technical sense in the Scriptures simply for God demonstrating His authority over Gentile nations in judgment. You see that in the Old Testament as God executes judgment on Tyre, Sidon. God executed judgment on Babylon in the ancient world, ex- executed judgment against Egypt, against the Philistines, against Moab, against Edom. All of these prophecies were outlined in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and at times the term uh, the day of the Lord is used to refer to those judgments of God. And in that sense, it is simply a non-technical term for God demonstrating his authority 
over Gentile nations in judgment. Third, it is used as a technical term. It is used as a technical term for a future event in God's timetable for Israel. It refers to God's intervention in the tribulation to judge the Gentile nations, to discipline Israel, and to establish his messianic kingdom. Those three things are accomplished in the day of the Lord. He intervenes to judge the nations. The tribulation is a time of divine discipline on mankind. It is the wrath of God. Even though the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan are evident, it is primarily a period of the pouring out of the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 6, and the wrath of God. And we'll look at that as a technical term in a moment. It is a time when God judges the nations, disciplines Israel. As we shall see, it is a time where God brings such tremendous suffering on Israel that finally they are forced to accept Jesus as Messiah. They are not, God doesn't, break, doesn't force their will, but he brings such incredible torment and tribulation and suffering upon them that they are finally brought to that point where their pride is broken and they have to cry out to Messiah to come and deliver them. So it's a time of judgment for the Gentile nations, a time of discipline for Israel, a time when, which precedes and includes the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. key passage for this is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 4 and following, or verse 2 and following where we read, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, and this tells us that there was going to be a time in the tribulation when Jerusalem will be under siege, under military siege from the armies of the Antichrist, that the siege is against Jerusalem and against Judah. Verse 3, And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. This tells us that Jerusalem is a center point of history at that time and that, that all the events going on in the time of the tribulation focus on Jerusalem. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. That's a focal point of the war in the tribulation. And that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, which indicates confusion in the armies. We saw this same kind of thing take place in our study on Sunday mornings in Judges 6 when Gideon, Gideon's 300 uh, won their victory against the uh, Midianite Amalekite coalition, that God is the one who intervenes in history to bring victory. Uh, I will uh, strike every horse with bewilderment, his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah, indicating God is still going to protect and preserve Israel in the midst of this time of judgment. While I strike every horse of the peoples, the, uh, that is the Gentiles, with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. And that indicates that time when the tribulation Jews begin to turn to the Messiah for uh, rescue. Another key passage to look at is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. Turn in there in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. 
This is one that is most familiar to Christians because of its reference here to the rapture. It is at the end of chapter 4 that, beginning in verse 16, that Paul says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. That's the rapture of the church. It is after that event that Paul then goes on to describe the events related to the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord comes after the rapture of the church, uh, church age believers alive and dead. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, as we have seen, that's a technical phrase which relates to God's breakdown of human history in terms of ages and dispensations. As to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, when does that occur? When do you expect a thief to come and break into your house? Well, we don't. There's no sign of it. It's a surprise. And that's the point, is that the day of the Lord comes as a surprise. And verse 3 states, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come. And this is a picture of the fact that man and the kingdoms of man at the beginning of the tribulation will think that they have finally achieved that most elusive of all dreams, world peace. Peace in our time. Wasn't that the cry in World War I? Peace in our time. And they had the war to end all wars. Man continually seeks worldwide peace and safety. But that will not come. And even when they think they're on the verge, on the very cusp of world peace, because of this peace treaty, the Antichrist is signed. Everybody knows that the greatest place of, of turmoil on the face of the earth is in Israel. The battle between the Jews and the Arabs goes on. And if he can solve that problem and bring peace to that area, then he can bring peace to any area. So they are crying out peace and safety. And right when they think they've got it, then destruction will come on them like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And here we see there's an analogy of the tribulation to birth pains. You go through labor pains. A woman goes through labor t- pains for, for uh, several hours uh, prior to giving birth. The birth is analogous to the birth of the kingdom, the messianic kingdom of the second coming. And it is the labor pains, that horrible time preceding the wonderful birth, that is analogous to the tribulation. It is a time where a preparation and preparing Israel specifically for the coming of the Lord. And so believers are warned, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. That's what we've been studying in First John on Sunday morning. That is our position. Because we are sons of light and sons of day, we are not of night or of darkness, so we do not have anything to fear. We will not go through the tribulation. So the day of the Lord is a technical term that includes that initial period of judgment, of the pouring out of God's wrath during the tribulation, and then culminates in the birth of the millennial kingdom. What are some other Old Testament passages that substantiate this? Isaiah 13, 6 and following is one. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. 
Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. This portrays the horrors that take place during the time of the tribulation. This will be a time that makes the horrors of any wars that we have seen before pale in comparison. World War I was considered the most uh, horrendous of all wars because of the slaughter that took place in trench warfare uh, along the lines that gash of trenches that was cut from the um, from uh, the North Sea down to Switzerland. And the armies there basically fought each other to a stalemate for about three or four years, and enormous numbers were killed. For example, at the Battle of the Somme, about 50,000 men died in one day. Just horrendous loss of life. And, the, of course, the loss of life during the Holocaust, during the Second World War, is uh, beyond compare. That's going to be nothing, as it were, compared to the horrors of the tribulation. It will be all, so great that all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. Isaiah 13:8 goes on to read, And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. So it's a portrait of God coming in judgment against all of mankind. He has withheld his judgment for thousands of years, but finally he will execute judgment on the unrighteous. Another passage is in Amos 5, 18 through 20. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? It will be a time of incredible misery and horror. Over a third of the earth's population will die during the tribulation. Fifth, the day of the Lord includes the darkness the darkening of the heavenly bodies in judgment. And this, of course, is followed by the light of blessing in the millennial kingdom. This is portrayed in Joel 2:28 and 29. And it will come about after this. The previous section in Joel 2 describes the horrors of the tribulation, the day of the Lord. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants... I will pour out my blessing in those days. This is the, the blessing, the light of the day of the Lord, the dawn of the millennial kingdom. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This refers specifically to the judgments of the bold judgments at the end of, tri- of the tribulation, just preceding and surrounding the events of the battle of Armageddon. And notice the conclusion in Joel 2.32. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, this is specifically talking about Jews, whoever cries out to the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So it is a in context... Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered is not talking about salvation in terms of going to heaven, but it's talking about deliverance from the final destruction 
of the battle of Armageddon. Six, the term day of the Lord has a more narrow aspect. Not only does it refer to, in in a technical sense, the seven-year tribulation and then the millennial kingdom, but in a more narrow sense, it refers to that key event of the second coming, the judgments associated with it on that particular time when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth to defeat the forces of the Antichrist and of Satan in the battle of Armageddon and to redeem Israel called the Great and Awesome Day of the Lord, Joel 2.31 and Zechariah 14.1-5. And in a broad sense, point number seven, in a broad sense, it refers to the seven-year period of the tribulation. Well, that's the term Day of the Lord. The two most important terms then are Daniel's 70th week and the Day of the Lord as references to the seven-year tribulation. A third term that's used is that of Jacob's trouble, which emphasizes the Jewish emphasis in the tribulation. Jeremiah 30, verse 7 reads, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. That's the New American Standard Version. Uh, King James used the time of Jacob's trouble. But he, that is Jacob, will be saved from it. An indication and promise that Israel will be delivered in the midst of Jacob's trouble. So the fact that the tribulation is called Jacob's trouble emphasizes its Jewish character. Now, in the church age, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave. Ethnic um, orientation, or one's ethnicity, uh, is not an issue. In the Old Testament, Jewishness was a factor in terms of their relationship to God. But Jewishness is not a factor in the church age, but it will be again in the tribulation. That tells us that the church must be removed in order for there to be this restoration of emphasis on Israel. Just another indication that the rapture will occur before the tribulation. A fourth term that's used of the tribulation is the term wrath of God. Wrath of God. Now, this is important because a few years ago, a man who was the head of Friends of Israel, a missionary organization we support, uh, came to the conclusion that the rapture was not prior to the tribulation, but occurred near the end of it. Not in the middle. He didn't have a hold to a mid-trip position. He held to a view that the, only the last part of the last three and a half years was called the wrath of God. So he came up with a new position called the pre-wrath rapture of the church. And his emphasis was that only it was only... Uh, uh, during that the church was only preserved from the wrath of God, which is a technical term for the last day, last period of the tribulation. But that's false because the term wrath of the Lamb is used as early as Revelation chapter 6. So it's the wrath of God from the very beginning is being poured out on mankind during the tribulation. Zephaniah 1.15 says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble, describing the day of, this is describing the day of the Lord, A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that, And we are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And their wrath refers to God's future judgment on the nations, that we are delivered from it. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, a little warning, not every time that the Scriptures mentions the wrath of God is it a reference to the tribulation. But in many places, it is a technical term for the tribulation period. Revelation 11:18, which takes place about the middle of the tribulation. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to the to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And then in Revelation 15, 1, the term is used again. And I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished or brought to completion. And then this is further explained in Revelation 16.1. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. But the wrath of God is not restricted to the bowl judgments, but begins with the outpouring of the wrath of the Lamb in the early stages of the tribulation. So we have so far seen technical terms such as Daniel's 70th week, the day of the Lord, the uh, wrath of God, Jacob's trouble, the wrath of God, and now the one that is most common and most familiar to us, the term the tribulation and great tribulation. Now, some people, it's funny how some people get just wrapped around the axle over a terminology, and somehow they think that, that the rapture means that uh, people who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture are, think that Christians are just going to escape tribulation. Scripture teaches that all believers can expect some level of adversity or tribulation in life. John 16.33 says that, um, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. This is a non-technical use of the word tribulation, where it simply refers to the adversity or trouble that we face in life. It's common to every believer. We are all going to go through different stages and different intensities of tribulation. Romans 2.9 states, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So that is talking about reaping what we, what we sow. It's talking about the natural consequences of bad decisions. And it's t- talking about the law of volitional responsibility that if we make bad decisions from a position of weakness, which is operating on the sin nature, we will eventually reap the consequences of those bad decisions. That's called tribulation. Romans 5.3, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations as believers because we know adversity is designed to give us an opportunity to trust God, apply doctrine, and to advance spiritually. So we can have joy in the midst of tribulation knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. But none of those passages are talking about what is later referred to in a technical sense as the tribulation. The tribulation is a time of unprecedented worldwide suffering. It's a term that refers to the entire period of Daniel's 70 weeks and not just the end. The term great tribulation applies only to the second half. That term is used only of the second half, the second three-and-a-half-year period of the tribulation when the uh, bold judgments are poured out and the intensity of God's wrath on the earth is felt.
Matthew 24:29 states, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. See, there the term tribulation is used to refer to the preceding part of the seven-year period. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, just a little side note. There's so much confusion when you look at the quotation of Joel 2 and Acts 2. And remember, it was in Joel 2 that Joel prophesied that the, there would be a heavenly reaction uh, at the end of the day of the Lord. And that's quoted by Paul, I mean, excuse me, by Peter in his Pente- sermon on the day of Pentecost. And none of those events happened at that time. In fact, he stated... Uh, quoting Joel, I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And that's using day of the Lord there to talk about that final battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. Well, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. That occurs at the end of the tribulation. Now, if we put all that together, we realize once again that what Joel was prophesying in Joel 2.28 and following was not fulfilled in any way, shape, or form in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And we studied that, that what Peter was saying was not that this is a fulfillment because nothing that was prophesied in, in Joel 2 happened in Acts 2. Nothing that happened in Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit like a, uh, like a wind, the tongues of fire, And speaking in languages, none of that was prophesied in Joel 2. So what was he, what was Peter saying? That the events that occurred on Pentecost were like, were reminiscent of what had been promised that to occur during the millennial kingdom. And what he was really saying is this is like what Joel the prophet said. And we see that, that, that if you interpret Joel 2, in its context, that it must be talking about events at the end of the tribulation. That hasn't occurred, so obviously Peter could not have been using Joel 2 in terms of any kind of fulfillment in its strict sense. Matthew, uh, Mark 13:9 goes on to talk about the tribulation. Jesus says, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of, cre- of the creation, which God created until now and never shall. In other words, the tribulation is going to be a time of such horror that never before has man even imagined such horrendous events. In verse 24 of Mark 13, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That is the great tribulation, which is then described in Revelation 7.14. Well, we read, and I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years. And this is a reference to the believers, the tribulation saints, who are martyred for their faith. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we see that the terms tribulation and great tribulation are biblical terms and refer to uh, Daniel's 70 weeks and the term great tribulation, I mean, the, the term tribulation refers to Daniel's 70th week, and the term great tribulation refers to just the last half of that period. Now, how long, how do we know when the tribulation begins and how long? Well, we've studied this enough, just looking at, 
at Daniel's 70th week to know that it begins with the peace treaty signed between the Antichrist and Israel. And its length is going to be just less than seven years. Remember, the years described are, are solar years, 360-day years. And then the Lord is going to come back even before that time com- is completed, uh, just because the Scripture says that if he had waited, then man would self-destruct. So it's going to be a little less than seven years. What are the purposes for the tribulation? There are four. First, to execute judgment on the wicked and rebellious Gentile nations who have both rejected Christ, rejected Jesus as Messiah, and rejected Israel. This is emphasized in Psalm 2.5, Jeremiah 25.30-32, Zechariah 12.3, 2 Thessalonians 2.12, Revelation 3.10, and Revelation 6.15. It is a time where God brings judgment finally, on all the arrogant, rebellious nations of mankind for their rejection of salvation. The second purpose of the tribulation is to demonstrate the inability of Satan to rule the planet. It is a time when the restrainer is removed, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, which is the Holy Spirit, and God sort of adopts a hands-off policy to allow Satan full reign. Satan is going to personally indwell the personage known as the Antichrist, and it's going to be the one time in human history when Satan has almost a free reign to try to bring together his kingdom and to truly be the god of this age and the uh, prince of the planet. But he is going to fail miserably. And it's going to demonstrate that Satan cannot function as God. Remember his claim in Isaiah 14 is that he wanted to be like God. And God is going to give him that final opportunity during the tribulation and he will be a miserable failure because the the, uh, planet will almost self-destruct under his reign. Third purpose of the tribulation is to provide a time for millions to be saved. There will be millions of people who trust Christ as Savior during the tribulation. Despite the horrendous judgment, there will still be uh, multitudes that respond positively to the gospel and multitudes also who are martyred for their faith. This is found in Revelation 7, 7, verses 1 through 17, and is going to be accomplished through the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And then the fourth purpose is to prepare the nation Israel for the Messiah and his kingdom. It's almost proverbial in the Old Testament that the Jews are pictured as a stiff-necked and rebellious people. God has extended his grace to them again and again and again, and yet they have rejected him. Jesus came as Messiah and performed signs and wonders in their midst, and they they, uh, rejected him. Uh, Jesus lamented over them, saying, If these signs and wonders had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But Jerusalem was stiff-necked, and the Jews rejected him. So it will take a mighty uh, act of judgment and discipline from God to bring them to a point where they uh, acknowledge him as their God. This is seen in Daniel chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And these are referring to two angels. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? That these wonders refers to the 
tribulation period and the judgments of the tribulation period. Notice the answer. And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And we saw that that's a technical term for three and a half years. That it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, notice that. Notice the, 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 the impact of that phrase. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, that is breaking the will, the rebellious will of the Jews. So God first has to, as it were, bring them to their knees where they finally cry out in repentance and cry out to, to God to send the Messiah to save them. Then all of these events will be completed. So these are the purposes of the tribulation, and they have nothing to do with God's plan and program for the church. So that means, once again, we will not be there. If we are in that rapture generation, we would not go through the tribulation. It is not for the church. Okay, who are the key people in the tribulation? Who are the major players? Got to have a program to keep the score right and know what's going on. The first major player, of course, is the person called the Antichrist. The Antichrist. But he is only called that in one passage, and yet that is the title that everybody uses to refer to him. This refers to the key human leader who opposes the plan of God and is personally indwelt by Satan and who attempts to destroy and wipe out the Jews. He is going to, uh, his anti-Semitism is going to make that of the Nazis in World War II pale by comparison. He is, uh, he's given several different titles in the scriptures. The term Antichrist comes from 1 John 2.18. There John says, children, it is the last hour in reference to the church age. It is the last hour, the last major dispensation before the end times. Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, there's the title, there it's used as a technical sense for the end time ruler. Even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now why are there many Antichrists? No one knows when the rapture is going to occur. No one knows when God is going to allow these events to take place. Not even Satan knows when the rapture is going to occur. So Satan has to be ready in every single generation, in every decade, with his man, with his program, with his procedures in place, so that he can move out. That's why, whether you're studying somebody in the 1700s or the 1800s or, or the 1970s, why they can look out on the historical scene and say, well, it looks like this nation or that person will be the Antichrist. Well, it, that, they might be right. Maybe that person is the man that Satan has tagged for that generation to move into that place. Satan has got to be ready at a moment's notice because he's going to be caught as much by surprise, like a thief in the night, as the church is and as the world is by the rapture. And he has to always be ready. So, of course, we can always look out on the, on the historical scene, the contemporary scene, and see conspiracies, see people, see groups that can easily fit into the prophetic scenario. But don't be distracted by that. That's what happens with everybody that comes along teaching prophecy is they sensationalize it and get everybody all excited about whether or not 
Uh, John F. Kennedy, who was assassinated with a head wound, is somehow going to rise from the grave and be the Antichrist, or whether or not um, uh, Kissinger is going to be the false prophet because he was Jewish, or whether or not Madeleine Albright might be the Antichrist, uh, whatever it might be. Everybody's always trying to jump on the sensationalist bandwagon and pick out some figure in history and, and plug them into one of these slots. But no one knows... But Satan always has people ready, waiting in the wings to move out in center stage as soon as the curtain goes up. 1 John 2.22 uses this title in the same way. There we read, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now, when we look at the term Antichrist... It comes from two Greek words, anti, the preposition anti, which means, has the, not just the idea of opposition. You know, we think of Antichrist, anti, A-N-T-I in English, as against Christ. But the Greek preposition has the idea of substitution, someone who is in place of Christ. The Antichrist is one who is going to set himself up as the Messiah. He is a substitute Messiah. He is Satan's solution to man's problems. So that is the emphasis of that, he, of that title. He rejects Jesus as Messiah and asserts himself as Messiah. Now the question is raised, how is it that, that the Jews would follow such a man because he's not a Jew and they know that the Messiah must be Jewish? Well, part of it, it will be that they are deceived and part of it will be that they, many will not accept him. Many Jews will reject him, but the world nevertheless will accept him. And every year you hear about somebody new who's being promoted as the uh, great ruler who's going to be bring prosperity to the human race. Now, as I said earlier, Antichrist is only one title. There are many others given in Scripture for, for this uh, end-time leader. Daniel 7, 8, he is referred to as the little horn. Horn is, uh, the little horn on the ram there is a picture of his, his power. He's called the insolent king in Daniel 8, 23. He is called the prince who is to come in Daniel 9, 26. He is called the one who makes desolate, who brings the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9, 27 and Matthew 24:15 which refers to when he sets himself up to be worshiped as God in the temple the rebuilt tribulation temple in Israel he is called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2:3 because he rejects the law of God and rejects scripture and sets himself up as the ultimate arbiter of law he's called the son of destruction also in 2 Thessalonians 2:3 called the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. He is called the beast, which pictures the, that man is not pictured as some glorious, wonderful, humanitarian uh, individual, but it, it, the beastliness of man because of sin. That man is not characterized as something glorious, but as something horrible and something violent. He's the beast in Revelation 11.7. And also in 13.1, 14.9, 15.2, 16.2, 17.3, and 
19, 20, and 2010. So this is his main title. He's the first beast mentioned in Revelation. He is called the despicable person in Daniel 11:21, the strong-willed king in Daniel 11:36, and the worthless shepherd in Zechariah 11:16 and 17. And all of those descriptions give us an idea of what the Antichrist is like. Now let's trace his career a little bit. First of all, he rises to power during the transition between the rapture and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Now, we don't know what he's going to be doing before that. He's probably being prepared uh, to take over some governmental position. But in the chaos that results from the rapture, now think about it. If the rapture were to occur tonight, upwards of 50% of Americans claim that they have put their faith and trust in Christ. Well, I don't know that that's true. That's probably overstating the case. But even if 25% of Americans are believers, if the rapture were to occur tonight, all of those people would disappear. If they were pilots of airplanes, they would disappear while they're flying their airplanes. If they're driving a tractor-trailer rig down a, an icy highway in Massachusetts, then they're going to lose control of their rig. And uh, all kinds of chaos is going to ensue. Government, governments will collapse if the rapture were to occur tonight. We have a president who's a believer. We have a vice president who's a believer. We have a number of members of both houses of Congress who are believers. We have a number of people who are in cabinet positions who are believers, and it would leave us in a state of national chaos. Just think of what it would do in the business community in Wall Street, the number of people who are CEOs who have their own companies, who are uh, stockbrokers, who are uh, major players in the business realm who would just disappear overnight. Not just in the U.S., it would occur in, in England, it would occur in Europe to a much lesser degree, but it would also occur there. It would even occur in Russia. I read an article several years ago that right after the opening of Russia to the east, there were a number of people from ministries like Campus Crusade for Christ and Navigators who had unique opportunities to go in and teach the Bible to government officials in the former Soviet Union and had uh, positive responses. So there are people who are believers even in places of influence in the Soviet Union, our former Soviet Union. So we could see that there would be tremendous chaos and into that power vacuum, this man is able to rise to the top and to bring order out of chaos and... Um, if uh, the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, we'll discuss those at some later date. Ezekiel 38 and 39 pictures the invasion of the uh, armies of Russia, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, down into, the, down into Israel. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Older traditional dispensationalists, or I should just say just uh, dispensationalists of a previous generation, had a tendency to always take the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 as the first stage in the Armageddon campaign. But prophecy scholars today tend to think that that event is going to occur at the beginning of the tribulation. There's really no time marker in Ezekiel 38 and 39 telling us exactly when that is going to occur. I think there's a strong argument for both sides and as we go through our study of prophecy in the next year or two, I'm going to get a chance to really nail down some of those issues. 
But what will happen, let's say, if that takes place at the beginning of the tribulation, right after the rapture, there's an invasion of Israel by Russia, and that is destroyed by a supernatural intervention of God that wipes out Russia as a military power. That's clearly pictured in Ezekiel 38 and 39. As a result of that, uh, there will be the signing of a peace treaty. This is one scenario. There will be the signing of the peace treaty. That's what gives the Antichrist the opportunity to rise to power. Daniel 9.27 states that he will make a firm covenant with the many. That's when he rises to power. He makes that firm covenant with the many. Daniel 7.24 and 25 states, As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, that ten horns refers to the ten-nation revived Roman Empire at the end of the age. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. This is the Antichrist. He subdues three kings, he forces them into this coalition, and then takes control of the ten-nation confederacy. Verse 25, And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints. This is tribulation saints, not church-age saints. Wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Notice that in the French Revolution, there was an attempt to go to a ten-day week and a three-week month. There was this attempt to change time because a seven-day week reflects a Judeo-Christian heritage. It's biblical. It's biblical because God created the time cycles of seven-day periods of time. But the Antichrist, like the arrogant leaders of the French Revolution, is going to attempt to change time and to control time. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. So this is talking about his, his rule during the tribulation period. Second thing we know about him, he's the head of a confederation of Western powers during the tribulation years. He is the head of what's called the revived Roman Empire. Point number three, he rises to power following this, this confederation of ten nations. A ten-nation uh, many think that this is a European nation, confederacy. Don't, don't, don't want, let your mind run away into the EU. I think there's 13 or 14 members today, so can't be the EU unless they lose three members. The Antichrist rises to power following the confederation of ten nations. He assumes control by force and subdues three of them powerfully, militarily. He will force them into the membership. So he is a very strong political leader. Point number four, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will set up his statue in the Holy of Holies of the tribulation temple. That means that the Jews will have to at least have a Holy of Holies set out. It may be temporary. It may not be that they have the whole temple rebuilt at this time. But they have to have some sort of structure there. It might even be an aluminum-sided building. But they will, all that's needed to have a temple is to have a temporary structure there that could easily be thrown up uh, overnight that will be called the, the uh, temple and the holy place and the uh, Antichrist will invade it and set up his temple there and that's his, or his statue as an idol there where he will be worshipped as God. Sixth, he's usually pictured in the Bible, or fifth, he's usually pictured in the Bible as a warrior. 
He pursues peace and wages war against the nations. And he operates on deceitful tactics. You can't trust him. He says one thing to one group and another to another group. Sixth, he's personally indwelt by Satan. He's personally indwelt by Satan. That gives him his power and his knowledge. Seventh, during the first three and a half years, he rises to power and consolidates his power. During this time, he will persecute believers and other opponents in a reign of terror that will go beyond any persecution, pogrom, or holocaust ever before experienced in human history. At the end of the seven years, his worldwide coalition begins to fragment. This is point eight. At the end of the seven years, his worldwide coalition begins to fragment. An army from the east invades in concert with one from the south, which culminates in the campaign of Armageddon the end battle of human history. When the Lord returns and defeats him at the second coming, he is going to be sent to the lake of fire with the false prophet, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. That's point nine. His destiny is the lake of fire with the false prophet. Now, one question that comes up is, is he Jewish or Gentile? He is Gentile. He comes out of the sea, it says in Revelation chapter 13. The sea is a picture of the Gentile nations. He is a Gentile. The type of the Antichrist is given in Daniel 11 as Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a Gentile. He will not be a Jew. It is the next character, the false prophet who is a Jew. And we will come back next time and look at the second major player in the tribulation, the false prophet, when we begin next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word and the opportunity to to learn how you control history and will bring all these events together to execute justice in human history and to demonstrate your glory in the end times. Father, we pray that we might be encouraged and be given hope because we know that you control history. And if you control the great events of history, then you are in control even in the midst of the adversities and tribulations we face. And therefore, we can trust you and rely upon you to give us peace, even in the midst of these difficulties. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.